0: Welcome to the Crafting Character podcast. Steve Carter here and in association with my good friends at Preaching Today, The Ascent Leader, and Food for the Hungry. I'm so excited for today's conversation with the one and only Dr. Jamar Tisby. He's the author of The Color of Compromise, How to Fight Racism, and most recently, How to Fight Racism, The Younger Reader Edition, which is just fantastic. But I'm telling you what, friends, this conversation I'm calling Fighting Racism Through Our Preaching. And I can't wait for you to learn. It's going to push you. It's going to challenge you. It's going to confront stuff within you. And hopefully um, over the years that we've been doing this podcast, I've built up enough trust with you to be able to listen, to learn, to receive. And Dr. Jamar Tisby just brings truth after truth, after truth. He's going to make you see the text. He's going to make you understand the heart of the preacher and why we must fight racism, not just in our personal lives, but also through our preaching. Here's Dr. Jamar Tisby. Dr. Jamar Tisby, thank you for joining us on the Crafting Character podcast. How are you doing today?
1: It's so fun the way these things come together, man. We were just interacting on social media. So there's a good portion. There's, there's something good about social media every now and again.
0: The redemptive potential is possible, <laughs> even <laughs> on Twitter, even on that, Twitter. That's right. That's right. <laughs> man, I'll just say I have been um, following your work um, and I'll, I'll never forget, like uh, a friend of mine was like, dude you have to read The Color of Compromise. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. You know, and then it had to be two hours later, I run into another person and they're holding The Color of Compromise. <laughs> and they're like, seriously, you have to read this book. And I kind of have this rule, like if three people mention it, then I'm going to go get it. You oh, okay. know, and just I like, like I just want to know. Yeah. And so then it was like on Twitter, saw it and I was like, all right. And like, man, that and then follow up, how to fight racism which man i i have told you this before but it's like you um reading my mail and it was convict convicting it was challenging it was practical it was um it was just so rich and so um it's it's an honor for you to be on this podcast um i i i would really love because this is a communication podcast and this is for, you know, pastors and preachers who, you know, I think, I think they want to talk about uh, racial justice and reconciliation. I think for most of us, this was not in our seminary classes. Uh, <laughs> Got is, that right. You know what yes. I mean? This, we, weren't, we weren't taught these things. We weren't taught these things in growing up in elementary school. Right, you know what right, I mean? And right. so, so now we're kind of thrust into this world of having to, articulate and communicate. And yet you just do such a great job, in my opinion, of just naming reality and actually giving hope. And you start off, you start off how to fight racism with these few words. Something is different this time.
1: Mm. You still believe that? I absolutely do believe that. So How to Fight Racism came out, I'll never forget the date, January 5th, 2021, which is the day before the insurrection on January 6th. And it was, I was finishing up writing the book as this historic racial justice uprising was happening in 2020 in the wake of the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. And there was just by the numbers, this was a bigger social movement than any we've seen in the country's history, uh, even bigger than the civil rights movement. And we saw different things changing and movement like we hadn't seen before. And I'll give you one example, uh, I went to school and got my PhD at the University of Mississippi and and the state flag of Mississippi was the last one in the country to have the Confederate emblem on it. And that flag had flown for 126 years. Since 1894, it outlasted Jim Crow. It outlasted the Civil Rights Movement. It outlasted MLK Day becoming a holiday, all of that. It only changed in two thousand twenty in the midst of these uprisings. So I said, something is different this time. And and people ask, you know, do I still believe that? Is it the case? Because we're still dealing with racism. Because we're still fighting for something as basic as voting rights in the United States, right? And true enough, we have not made the progress that we all want to see. And that... Maybe a long time coming. Who knows? But I do think that things shifted a little bit. So, for instance, as we record this, it is the day where the judge handed down the sentencing for the lynchers, uh, the people who killed Ahmad Arbery, a black man running in uh, a neighborhood in Georgia, and they all three— got life sentences, too, without the possibility of parole. Now, it's worth a discussion about justice versus accountability, about the redemptive value of a lifelong prison sentence and all of that. But would those kinds of convictions happen had we not had movements like we had in 2020 and really for the past several years with Black Lives Matter? So even though we're not where we want to be yet, I do think we're further along than we were. And we've got to hold on to the small points of progress, fleeting and, and sort of minuscule as they may be, uh, to give us hope and to motivate us to keep going.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's so rich. And I, I mean, I, I think one of the, the, there's so many places I feel like I can go with this. But one of them is you end the book, though, talking about hope. Yeah. And, and keeping that hope and having that hope. You have a line um, that I heard in, a, in an interview once that you said, We have to have the mind now that we are laboring for a legacy. We are activists now so that we can be great ancestors later.
1: Thank you for pointing out that line. I, I labored
0: long over that. Um, it's just- beautiful, <laughs> rest taking. It's, it's it like But, like, I, I think about that, like, and I go back and this is, this is going to be, um, you know, you're, you're far deeper of a historian when it comes to this than I am. But, you know, I, I lived in Chicago for a number of years and knew of Emmett Till's story. Yeah. And, and, you, and I wonder, like, when that got publicized in the papers, like, I wonder, like, if people were like, oh, now it's going to change.
1: Right, right, and then you right. fast
0: forward to some some integrations and, and desegregation in the schools, and you're like, oh, okay, wonder if it's now gonna change. And you start going, and then I grew up in Southern California, and I remember as a kid seeing the video of Rodney King, right, and and seeing this and going, now now it's gonna change, you know, we we've we've had we've gone through like the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Like we've we've seen all, and and I and I and now we got 2020. And we see what happened to George Floyd and, and the murder. And, and, and you mentioned what happened, the lynching of ah- Ahmaud Arbery and, and Breonna Taylor. We can go down a whole list of names. My right. question is, man, you have hope. I see it in your, in your words. You're an activist now. Um, how? Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I feel like these – when you do such great work, but you're talking about – traumatic events i don't want to take that lightly either like they, sure. like every time you do an interview on fighting racism like the whole history of this stuff comes up and i'm just like man i just the uh, the emotional the, the weighty toll of all of this but um how do you keep having hope that to write being an, a great ancestor later
1: yeah yeah um you know in a sense the answer or the response is very simple which is What's the alternative to hope? Despair. <laughs> wow. That sounds like a miserable way to live. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I don't like the idea of walking around in despair all the time yeah. because of the brokenness and the sinfulness of people and the world. Uh, digging a little deeper... As, as people of faith and as one author put it, we're prisoners of hope. Yeah. As Christians, we, we are inest- inextricably bound to hope because we believe that a heinous crime, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross resulted in a resurrection and the offer of salvation for any who believe. So if you believe that, <laughs> how can you not have hope? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that 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 anything um, can change. That anything that 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 the dry bones can live. That that resurrection can occur. That redemption can occur. I don't know how you read the New Testament, how you learn about the life, death, resurrection, and coming return of Jesus, and not have hope. It's a question of where you put your hope. Wow. I think a lot of people wrestle with despair because we're putting our hope in earthly kingdoms. We're putting our hope in, uh, you know, a particular political party, you know, having the White House or Congress. We're putting our hope in a particular law or policy being passed or changed. We're putting our hope in human beings who are prone to wander and all of those things. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's bad to advocate for change on those levels. It's it's, it's good. And it's our, it's our duty in a way of of loving our neighbor. So by all means, pursue change whenever and wherever possible. But we know that our ultimate hope is not just what happens in the world, but what happens in us and between us. Yeah. So, so so what I'm not doing is saying, wait till the sweet by and by till you die, right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying be as vigorously active right now as you can be, but also understand hope doesn't just come from the change and the progress we make externally. Hope comes from the transformation that we experience internally and in our relationships with one another. You know what I mean? So So there's a, there's a, change that happens in your heart, in your ability to to empathize with others when you pursue justice, that I think God is just as concerned about that transformation and that change as God is concerned about the broader issues of external justice and changing laws and policies and systems and structures, which is important work to do, but in God's economy is not the only work to do. So I try to have that more expansive understanding of what progress looks like, and that gives me hope.
0: Man, that's so beautiful. That's stunning. I think about as pastors and and there's so many preachers and lead pastors who are listening to this. And I think the, for the events of 2020 brought to the surface, and I'm sure the many of you listening to this, this podcast, you got an email that just said, if you even just tried to like tip your feet or toes into this conversation, you got an email. If you're like me, that just said, Steve Carter, just preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. Like, you, stop this. You're distracting. And I, I see a, a wider gospel. I see a more beautiful gospel that's bringing all things together. But like, I, how do you respond? And I, I really want to like dive into this because again, your book, How to Fight Racism, you just dropped How to Fight Racism for Kids, which is awesome. Uh, I want to talk more about that in a moment. But I really want to like, help pastors with how to dive into this when there's a whole crew in their congregation that is just preach the gospel. Right, right. How do you respond to that? Well, I'll begin with
1: sort of a sober acknowledgement of what I understand to be reality, which is if you're getting those emails from people in 2022, after all we've seen, in the past several years, I don't know how quickly they're going to change their minds, if at all. I say that because we are living in times that demand a decision on justice. As one person put it, we're living in times of moral clarity. So we're living in times where you either believe the 2020 presidential election was free and fair, or it was a fraud. We're living in times where what happened on January 6, 2021 in the Capitol was an attempted insurrection and a harbinger, honestly, of things to come, or it was a, it was a rally got a little out of hand. We live in a time where you either acknowledge that we have a viral pandemic and things like a vaccine and masks can help mitigate the damage or you don't. So what I'm saying is in these times of such moral clarity, people have made their stances clear and the, mo- the clearer the issue the stronger people adhere to their stance. So if you have people emailing you now saying, just preach the gospel, well, they have strongly adhered to their stance. And I'm not quite sure that any amount of one-on-one meetings, email exchanges, read this book, whatever it might be is actually going to persuade them. It's ultimately a heart issue it's not just an intellectual issue right it's not a, a matter of marshaling the right facts in the right way it's it's about an ideology they're believing an idol they're worshipping in many ways so that's the sobering reality i think and and i think what pastors and church leaders ought to legitimately be about in all fairness to to anyone who who would come to their church is clearly stating their church's stance on racial justice. It's good. And letting people decide. So you may not persuade, but you can at least make it clear that certain views will not be tolerated. Certain statements will not be conscienced. Certain efforts and endeavors will always be part of the life of the church. And then you let people decide. What's not good or healthy right now is for the sake of those people who will email you and say, just preach the gospel, to tiptoe around issues of critical importance that demand forthright and clear statements, condemnation, whatever it might be. Um, I just think we owe each other the truth. And that's honestly all we can give.
0: Well, and I think that's where one of your um sentences that you kind of wrote <clears throat> in the color of compromise that really got me was how easy it is for me to think about okay, how do I say this in a way that mitigates any tension that can bring as many people along hoping that someday they see the light.
1: That's right. That's right. That's right.
0: And 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 I think I grew up communicating nuance and, and learning how to navigate nuance, the gray well, so that, you know, red states thought I was their guy, blue states thought I was their guy. You know what I mean? And, and, but that moral clarity that you're talking about now, it's like, I mean, who would have thought, who would have thought that Nike would have stayed with Colin Kaepernick, Uh (laughs) you know, like when Jordan was asked, Michael Jordan was asked, Hey, like, I can't, I can't support because Republicans buy sneakers too, and that—that right, right. that was kind of this mentality. You—you you never let anybody know. But now we're entering into a world where you just said it. We have to clearly articulate what we stand for, yeah. what we believe, and like you said, let people decide. I—I I, want to like shift this and say, okay, like I we're going into a month, February, Black History Month. I'm at this church in Chicago um, for city church. And we're, 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 we're looking at doing a a series. Um, if if you, if you had a whole month and not one month is going to change the culture and change, but like to really begin to pastor and communicate, I'd love to know, Hey, how would you go about this? But then also I'd love to dive deeper into what are communication tips, preaching tips when you're talking about matters of justice, um, matters of racial reconciliation, how to do that in a way that everyone can kind of have to make up their decision and how to do that. Well,
1: (laughs) well, it should tell you how much I I love and appreciate your audience. i am giving this all away for free. Uh, this is, you know, if it's, um, you know, say black history month and uh, I'll say, you know, we'll start with predominantly white churches. Um, it should be a month that helps serve as a, as a jumping off point for a 24-7, 365 commitment to racial justice. So if you don't already have some sort of racial justice action committee, which could be standing or it could be convened at certain times, that will help do several things like this committee would review church documents would come up if necessary, if you don't already have it with a um, a sort of statement on racial justice. So, so as a black person, you know, and, and in the 21st century, typically our first encounter with a church is on the web. And if I go to your church website, and I don't see some signs of an overt ongoing commitment to racial justice. I'm already going to have, uh, you know, some sort of guard up. Like, will this church be a white Christian nationalist church? Uh, is, it commit, is it going to be a safe place, not just for me, but my family, my kids coming in, right? Like, this is, these are really important issues to Black people and other people of color. What, is, what, is, what does your church have that's front-facing, right? Like, because we can't be, as you said before, we can't be covert <laughs> about our commitment to racial justice. It's got to be public in some way, shape, or form. So, so, so coming up with some sort of racial justice statement ongoing, is, is this embedded in the discipleship pathways of the church? So a real simple thing to do is have a, a, a whole lesson dedicated in your new members class To your church's understanding of racial justice and saying, again, letting people decide from the jump before they become a member, if you want to be part of this church, this is what you have to understand about our approach to racial justice. It's important. Racism is real. Fighting it is a priority. That's who we are. If that's not your cup of tea, God bless you. But but, but from the front end. And then also, it's more than a, a sermon series, but I'll get to that it's embedding it into your Sunday school curriculum most churches have some sort of you know 3 or 4 year cycle right of of material embedding racial justice into that right and then so if you did a preaching series i would do it on the image of god which tackles all sorts of issues but 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 the basic fact is We are living in the most diverse and pluralistic society in history. The nations are literally at our doorstep. And how, as people of faith, are we to understand human beings in such a way that is going to allow us to relate in a dignified manner to people who are, in some cases, so different from us? All of that, I think, is rooted in the doctrine of the image of God, that that we're all created in God's image and likeness, and therefore have inherent dignity and infinite value and worth in the creator's eyes. So how do you flesh that out in terms of a context of racism and white supremacy? Right. And then, um, I mean, I can go on and on and on. It's about, you know, if we look at the arc of racial justice, it's about building awareness. It's about building relationships intentionally. How is your church con- is your congregation Are your church leaders intentionally getting in the way of People who are different in diversity in and, and forging relationships that wouldn't occur naturally in a in a society that has been segregated along racial lines. And then commitment, what and, and it doesn't even have to be on a national level, but in your local community, whether school boards or city council meetings or zoning laws, there was a there was a city. Just north of Jackson, Mississippi, they were sneaky about it. Jackson is 80% black. Black people were moving to this suburb immediately north of the city. And the way the white city leaders were trying to prevent that was sneaky. They said we, they wouldn't allow multi family units to be built, in other words, apartments, which were generally more affordable. For the black people who were, who were low income and moving into the city. And instead, they said it has to be zoned for single family units, you know, which, you know, home, white picket fence, yard, all that stuff, which costs money. And so they never used race. They never spoke about black or white. They just put it in these supposedly race neutral terms that everyone, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, knew would prevent black people from moving there in greater numbers. That stuff is happening in communities around the country. What's happening in your community? So there's a million different things you can do. And let let me lastly say, financial support is never a bad idea for for, uh, Black-led nonprofits and organizations like the one I founded, The Witness, Inc. Um, We just have so many hurdles uh, in terms of fundraising and accessing uh, material resources that the simple act of not just writing a check once, but but having a black-led organization as part of your uh, regular, even monthly, uh, recurring giving, can be a huge, huge lift for these individuals and organizations that are doing great work. So,
0: man, that's that's so powerful. Um, you, you mentioned real briefly um, the arc, and that's that's kind of like the the framework. That you right. built, how to fight racism, the book on, and I just want to just r- reiterate awareness, relationship, commitment, and and again, I, I I thought it was as practical and as deep and as wide. I mean, it was it was so so rich. It's so helpful. Um, I wanna I wanna ask you because I kind of grew up in a whole like white space, predominantly that really was based on the Acts Two Church felt like a lot of white church was like acts to church, you know, and and, and again, not, not, not I'm not throwing shade on this. I just I think this was this kind of idea of man they they got together, they broke bread together, they prayed, there's like fellowship like that's, and the Lord added to their number, you know
1: yeah, yeah.
0: and and it, it's interesting is because I think the Lord's prayer, whenever you ask a rabbi teach me how to pray, you were, you were asking him, like, what do you hope to see accomplished on earth? What's your mission? Mm-hmm. So, so, I think it's deeply spiritual and deeply practical. I want people to have bread. I want people to, like, have their debts forgiven spiritually and practically because they were living in, you know, um, occupation. Yeah. So, then you see Acts 2 and Acts 4, you see this kind of, like, actual high school students going, I don't know how to lead a church. Like, there's 3,000 people Let's just do the Lord's Prayer. And and it kind of goes to this piece, which which is cool. Well, then you get to Acts 13. And I I have I think I miss this. And I, I really love your 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 thoughts on this. Acts 13:1, this church in Antioch, you've got Barnabas, you got Lucius of Cyrene. Um you've got Menaeum who's like an adopted kid who was like bought by Herod so Herod's kids could have friends. Um you've got Simeon from um, from Niger, you've got you've got Paul, you've got like people from all the ends of the earth here.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I think we stopped at like an Acts 2 church, and we we don't actually like an Antioch church, right? I, I and I think part of it is like, I guess, my question is, why do you think that is,
1: yeah, yeah, you
0: know and and you've you've written about this like in ways where too, the white church often loves like the stories of Paul, and the black church looks to like exodus, exodus so like yeah. you know what I mean So like i love I love just to hear about that, and then how that how that shapes the people and informs the people when you're doing when you're preaching
1: that's good, that's really good observation um yeah, we, we we see all over not even just the New Testament but the Old Testament The the, the church is is ethnically diverse and, and and the 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 assembly has always been ethnically diverse. And 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 how did we get here where we are? Uh in it, where you know that that off-repeated phrase, 11 o'clock AM Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. So um Back to the, the the person who emails, you know, just preach the gospel. I wouldn't argue with that. <laughs> I would say, though, what, what does the gospel mean? It means good news. So what's good news to a people who are oppressed because of the color of their skin? What's good news to people who have to choose between uh, paying the light bill or Fixing their one automobile. What's good news to uh, women who have been relegated to you know marginal roles in the church, right? So it, it, it's it. Jesus came to preach good news to the poor, liberation to the uh, captives. You know, I mean, it's 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 about applying timeless principles two specific circumstances which is i think what the church in antioch was able to do meeting yeah. people's needs as a demonstration of the abundance of grace that comes through faith in christ right but then when you look at the modern church particularly in the united states it's like there was a bunch of christians in antioch who left and moved to the suburbs put up gates <laughs> and said, yeah, no, you, you, you all can't come in here. That was nice for a while and we're glad it's happening, but you know, we need a more robust children's program or, you know, all of our members are out here uh or, you know, we need to, we, we need to grow numerically and financially and we just can't get into all that stuff if, uh, uh if we want to continue to grow. So I think, you know, what we've often considered Christianity in the United States is probably more appropriately termed white Christian nationalism. And that's a hard pill to swallow because for many people the white Christian nationalist version of religion is all they know. Wow. And it's not white Christian nationalism, it's just Christianity. So when you try to uncouple these racist ideas from religion, they think you're attacking the very faith itself. So you wanna talk about teaching in the church. I mean, do a series on white Christian nationalism and uh, be prepared for your group to go from a large one to a more intimate one <laughs> if, uh, if folks but, get mad.
0: But why, I mean, I, I guess like I, I sit here and I go, none of us have arrived. And I mean, like anybody listening, your people are sitting there. They they can go, they can think about Ruth Bell Graham's tombstone. Says her name, the date she was born, date she passed, and then says, "Construction completed. Thanks for your patience." Which I just love. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? But like, why is this so hard for people to swallow? You know, even like, even though I'm sure for some of you listening, you heard Dr. Jamar Tisby say, "White Christian." nationalism and some of you were like i'm gonna turn this off right now and some of you're like got, got, you know your are maybe your heart started beating but like what wh- for that like i think the problem is is there people we hear these phrases and for some they go oh yeah that's that's those people yeah but they don't even know just by osmosis and i've had to look at my own story and look and go Oh man, like even yeah. let's talk Charles Finney. You, you write about Charles Finney who was a hero of mine because of how he changed the altar call to a signing for abolition and he was trying to get uh, slavery to end. But then you, you write and you totally burst my whole like vision of, of, of Charles Finney when you tell me about what his church looked like. Right. And, and so, I mean, maybe speak to that for a second, but I really want to get to that question of like, how do we help people see this within them without like putting up kind of their, their guns and their arms to fight, but to receive it and recognize that they're in process to get closer to the image of God?
1: Yeah, I think we have to have the humility to recognize that none of us approach God or the word of God from a purely objective perspective. That's good. What trips up a lot of people when you talk about something like white Christian nationalism or the cultural captivity of the church or whatever it might be, is they think that their reading of the Bible and their understanding Of God and Christianity is just the truth. It's just the way it is. But they don't acknowledge, sometimes refuse to acknowledge, that their understanding has been shaped by time, place, circumstance, and culture. Wow. Which doesn't mean it's wrong in and of itself, but it means there's more to the story. And I think a lot of white Christians in particular, and you know, globally speaking, anyone who, who, who is in the position of being in the majority or having more power, I think what folks have been conditioned to believe is that all they're doing is interpreting scripture without any bias. This is just what the word of God says. And so why don't you agree with it? Why don't you get on board? And then anybody who comes along, particularly people of color who have a different perspective on, say, racial justice or what good news is truly, well, you are playing politics. Uh, You are um, being – your interpretation is being skewed by racial concerns, and you really need to believe like I believe because that's just the objective, plain reading of Scripture in the right way is the implicit message yeah. there, the right way to understand the faith. So I'll give an example to bring this all down to, to earth. You may be familiar with uh, uh, Reverend Daniel Hill, who's up in Chicago. Yeah. He wrote the book White Awake, White Awake, and uh, he, he relates a story in that book uh, where the light bulb went on for him. He was officiating a wedding of some... Southeast Asians. I believe they were from India. And so the wedding had all of the clothing, all of the food, all of the music, the dancing that was uh, common to their culture. And Daniel Hill, who's a white guy, went up to the groom and he's like, man, this is so cool. I wish I had a culture. To which the groom responds, Daniel, you do have a culture and it's white. And in that moment, this pastor recognized, oh, he has been part of a culture all along that has been influencing and shaping his ideas, his perspectives, even his understanding of the faith. But he he was not conscious of it. But when he became conscious of the fact that he too, as a white person, has a culture, has a context, and that influences the way he sees and maneuvers in the world, that's when he started to become more conscious and intentional about racial justice and equity. And I think that's what all of us need to be aware of is that we're coming out of a context too, and it doesn't mean it's wrong, but it means there's more to the story.
0: Yeah. you And you, you do a great job of articulating this um, with a light switch and a smoke alarm, Yeah, um, you know, and talk about that because I think, I think that's, that explains for, for, you know, in a, in a, Similar yet a little deeper kind of uh, version of of Pastor Daniel Hill, who I love, who's amazing, right. amazing Me guy. Yep. Um, but like I, I, I think of what white people get to do and have the privilege to do with the light switch and the reality of what it is to be a person of color.
1: Yeah, great, great. Uh, so for a lot of people who are in the position of relative privilege, majority power. Issues of racial justice are like a light switch that they can flip on and off. So in 2020, these historic racial justice uprisings, a lot of people had the light switch on. But as time passed, people get weary, new issues come up, the cost of pursuing real racial justice gets too high. And so what happens? You flip the light switch off. And that is a possibility only for people Uh, in those positions of privilege because, for instance, for a white person in the United States, you can get your education, your job, your family, maneuver socially, all without any real meaningful contact or interaction with Black people or other people of color. It's not going to affect your sort of earthly circumstances adversely in many cases. Uh, But it's different for People who are historically marginalized or oppressed, so Black people, for instance, it's more like racial justice is more like a smoke alarm. Smoke alarm is on all the time, and it has to be on all the time to detect danger. Smoke alarm can't take a break because that might be the moment when a fire breaks out. And so I used to say from the moment we step out of the door, we have to be on but even then we have instances of you know police kicking down doors and shooting people in their homes without cause uh so so constantly the smoke alarm is on and sensitive to the faintest whiff of smoke of racism because where there's smoke there's bound to be fire so we have to be vigilant ever vigilant and i think one sign of authentic solidarity on the part of white people is that you don't treat racial justice like a light switch; it's like a smoke alarm, which is what Black people and other people of color have always lived with.
0: That's so good. Uh, you, your your dear friend, uh, he's a uh, been a co host of yours of the and the podcast, uh, a friend of mine too, Pastor Tyler Burns, who's been on this podcast as well. I, I got I I got connected to Tyler because uh, someone put a clip of his teaching. And there was a a line that he said when he was defining what justice is. And he Uh. said, justice is when I make your problem, my problem. And isn't that what God did when he made our problem, his problem. And that's, that's what I hear you talking about. When you talk about that smoke alarm to just visit that position, that this is the reality. Um, And it's a privilege that I can switch. I can flip it on or flip it off. But man, to keep that on, to like recognize, man, that that's exhausting to that's have right. to have that is that like I can grow weary and it's a privilege to turn it off and on. And something can come into my Twitter feed that's you know a new new thing to care about. But this is reality. Yeah. And and I think for for us as pastors who man are, are shepherds. Do we empathize with that? Yeah. And are we teaching our people how to empathize? And not in a way where we put all the work on our friends of color, but in a way where we are sitting with, and that's and suffering with and joining with. Um, and again, I think that's where your first two letters, the awareness and relationship, yeah. it's just so important. I think that, and that's the... And then the commitment, but like the, that, that relationship. Um, where have you seen this done well in the church?
1: <laughs>
0: That's always the tough one. Um, <laughs>
1: uh, so because here's the reality is if your church or congregation did not start with racial justice as a priority, it's going to be really hard to add it on. Come on. uh, one illustration I heard a pastor use was like baking a cake. So you put in the flour, the eggs, the baking soda, whatever. I don't bake the cake. For <laughs> you, know, you put in all the ingredients, you put it in the oven and it comes out and then you taste it and you realize, oh, I forgot to add the sugar. And then what do you do? You grab a handful of sugar, and you sprinkle it on the top. It's not the same. <laughs> it has to be baked in in order to come out, right? And that's the same with churches, with organizations. Racial justice is not something you can sprinkle on on top and expect it to taste the same as if it was baked in. So when you, you ask about like, where's it working? It's really hard to give examples of existing places that, that have a long history where racial justice wasn't a priority and now it is. What's happening in those churches is um, if church leaders are, are 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 holding their ground and taking a stance on racial justice, um, either they're losing members or they're leaving the church. Those church leaders, uh, it, it, basically, it draws a line in the sand, and I, I don't think that's a bad thing. Actually, I, I think it's a it's a much needed sifting in the church, a realignment in the church that's happening right now it's incredibly hard and i have so much empathy for pastors who are undertaking this endeavor and trying to make it more of a smoke alarm than a light switch and paying the price yeah. where people are uh not tithing like they used to where they're threatening to leave where they're sending angry emails where they're you know they're keeping you up at night praying and and and, and anxious about the state of the church I, I i feel that i get that the the exchange though is a great one As I said at the top of the podcast, there's something that happens to you when you engage in this work of justice. There's a nearness I've experienced of Christ that I didn't know before I had to take sort of public blows for committing to what I think is the the cause of Christ, which is justice and equity. And there's a sweetness and an imminence a presence of Christ and among other people committed to the same work. Uh, so so a lot of people ask you, like, how do you keep going? What, what keeps you moving? It's the community of like-minded, like-hearted people who are also pursuing justice. So I just say that as a word of encouragement to people. Like, there's no iteration of this that's going to be easy, smooth, uh, that's going to preserve the status quo. You're not Trying to, just as a reminder, you actually try to change the status quo. So don't be surprised when it changes, uh, perhaps in unexpected ways. Um, but where it's working is I think you know, there are lots of new churches in the past three to five years that are being planted and started uh with racial justice uh at the core. There there are a lot of courageous individual Christians who are willing to to, to, to pay the high cost. Of standing up for racial justice. And that's meant, uh, you know, exclusion, um, uh, being ostracized from their historic communities of faith, but they're willing to uh, become a, a wilderness wanderer, if you will, um, because they know that, that it's the right place to be for them right now. So um, it's happening, but it's like a mustard seed. It, it, it appears small, but trust and believe the Lord is growing uh, a a mighty tree of of righteousness and justice that's going to bear fruit. Um, And we might be the seed that falls and and dies to the ground, dies in the ground, but produces life uh, because of it.
0: Dr. Jamar Tisby, thank you. I mean, The Color of Compromise, just unbelievable. You need to read it, friends. How to Fight Racism, you have to get it. I mean, this is those two books um, will give you such depth of insight, and as pastors, um, we've got to be—we've got to be pushing people towards this gospel truth. It truly is a gospel issue. But you did something that I thought was just so awesome: is you um, wrote "How to Fight Racism for Kids" that you know came out um, recently, and I—I I just. I'd love to know just a little bit of the backstory on that and, you know, um, what your hopes are for that book. So I get two questions really frequently.
1: The first one is, what do we do about racism? Like the practical question. I'd say close on the heels of that in terms of frequency is, how do I teach my kids about racism? So, I mean, any conscientious parent wants their children or the kids in their life uh, to know about vital issues, right? Uh, could be, um, you know, education to uh, sex. <laughs> you know, you, you you want your kids to be prepared and equipped. Well, finally, and I think this is another reason to, uh, 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 to say things are different this time. In 2020, I think there's was this swell of people, particularly white parents and adults, realizing I, I not only need to learn about this, I want my kids or the young people in my life to learn about this. So there was there was sort of a, 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 a grassroots, uh, bottom-up swell of interest in you know, how do we equip our kids for racial justice. At the same time, there was this white backlash happening to all of the racial tr- progress folks were trying to make where uh, this thing that they labeled critical race theory – all of a sudden becomes the boogeyman in every K through 12 school across America. And you got folks showing up, yelling and screaming at local school boards and banning, you know, they literally have lists of books they want to ban now. And then, uh, you know, opposition to something like the 1619 Project that says, oh, actually racism has been part and parcel of the founding of this nation from the beginning. So it was these, it was this, it was this interest on the part of adults, as well as the pushback on on the part of other adults that that made a book about fighting racism for young readers, I think, an imperative. And so it's geared for young people ages eight to 12, around that fourth through sixth grade range. But I'll tell you a secret. I think this book is really good for adults too. (laughs) So if you wanted to read the kid's version for yourself, don't be embarrassed. You can be, you know, reading it on the train or something and just be like, oh, this is for my kids. I'm just (laughs) reading along with them, but it's really for you. That's totally fine. Uh, So, so look, bottom line is our young people are absorbing messages about race and racism right now, whether we want them to or not. And the only question is, Who will be most influential in shaping their ideas about other people? Do you want it to be you, the people who love and care for them the most, or do you want it to be some outside forces? And I just think it's really hard for parents of all races and ethnicities. By the way, this isn't just for white people, black folks, people of color is going to help you too. It can be hard to broach that conversation with young people, but it can be helpful if you have a jumping off point. And that's what I hope this book can serve as.
0: I think it's amazing because I think oftentimes you'll have people who will have learned something, but then when they try and pass it down, they revert back to how they were taught. Yeah. And I think this resource is going to give people, parents, teachers, mentors, volunteers, church, youth group, kids' ministry, actual practical, applicable opportunity and language to really disciple shape and form. So I'm excited because um, we're getting a whole bunch of uh, boxes for uh, our parents at, at this church that I'm a part of. And I'm, I'm just thrilled um, so cool. that this resource is, is, is going to be available and it's going to be helpful to really help parents. Um, yeah, it's yeah. really help. like, and, and especially you as pastors, like get one. I mean, it's just going to be awesome conversations. Um, I'm excited for my son and I to start it. Um, you know, it's kind of like our little nightly tradition to talk about the issues of our world. And, wow. And so this will be super, super fun, but <laughs> That'd be, um, that's great. Man, I just want to say, um, thank you. Um, thanks just for just, uh, what you bear witness to on the regular, whether on Twitter, whether through your writing, whether through just, uh, all the good work that, that you are doing. Um, we have a, we have a little tradition here on this podcast that I just, um, invite, uh, the guest to, to give, uh, a closing benediction or blessing. And, um, and it could be a word of challenge. It could be a, a pastoral word. It could be anything, but, um, I'm just, I'm just so grateful for you and thanks for taking the time, um, to really, coach us, teach us, challenge us, and remind us of the image of God and what we need to be as pastors and shepherds and leaders.
1: Amen, amen, amen. One of the verses uh, I frequently come back to is uh, from the first chapter of Joshua, uh, verses one through nine, where uh, three times in, in those verses, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and very courageous. And I think that is what is necessary, what's required in this fight against racism, but we cannot be strong and courageous in our own power. Like we, we don't have it in us. We are always going to succumb to the temptation of comfort and complicity. And so what is our hope? Well, in verse nine, God attaches a promise. He said, be strong and courageous for I am with you wherever you go. And that is a promise In the book of Joshua, that becomes a person in Jesus Christ, whose name is Emmanuel, God with us. So as we pursue racial justice, which requires strength and courage, know that you don't have to grit it out and come up with it yourself. Know that that strength and courage comes from the presence of Christ with you, and in you through the Holy Spirit. And that's what gives you strength and courage for this journey.
0: Dr. Jamar Tisby, thank you. That is a word. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Man, man. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to the podcast. I hope that you were as challenged, as inspired, convicted as I was while I was interviewing Dr. Jamar Tisby. Uh, I hope that you will continue to follow along as we just go on this journey together, trying to be the people who get better at the crafts of communication, but have our character always lead the way. Hey, my friends at Preaching Today, they want to help you. And they're doing some incredible work. We we're looking at the site. We're looking at how to just continue to to shape and form pastors. They've got an amazing, amazing family of members, and and you literally can sign up today. You can just go to order pt now slash cc thirty, and that's going to give you thirty percent off. Uh, for the first year, their monthly membership. And there's some conversations that we're having that we're already filming and recording in regards to Lent and Holy Week, just ways, again, just to to help guide you and shape you and um, help you on your journey to preach and proclaim the good news. And then my friends at The Ascent Leader, uh, we're doing these cohorts, these crafting character cohorts. We're getting leaders in living rooms to have these open, honest conversations with some amazing faculty, We're launching another cohort with the one and only Dr. Mark Moore. And I can't wait for you just to, 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 to learn from him. He's just fantastic. I love his work from quest 52 and core 42 core 52. So go to the ascentleader.org, sign up. We would love, love, love to help you. And if you're also looking for a way to engage with the global issues of our day, um, one of the best organizations on the planet is Food for the Hungry. They're based in Phoenix. I know their team. They're doing incredible work. And so, um, again, if you're looking to to find a way to serve, it's so fun watching churches partner with under-resourced, underdeveloped areas to help bring about holistic change for the gospel. Again, if I can serve you, you can always feel free to hit me up on on Instagram or Twitter or email me at steve at steveryancarter.com. But give us a follow on Twitter, craft underscore character or on Instagram, craft and character. But my friends, may you, not just in your life, may you in your preaching from your pulpit proclaim good news for everyone always. May we be the kind of people who have that courage, that strength to fight racism through our preaching. Much love, everyone. See you in a couple of weeks. Grace and peace. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu slash hdl.